You're listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API. Now from the Nowcast Network Studios, here's Mike. Hey, welcome to the Audio Nowcast. My name is Mike Rodriguez. And before we get going, let me introduce the guys. Over here, on my right, we've got Mr. Bobby Osinski. Hey, Mike. Hi, guys. Hey, Bobby. Next to him, we've got Scott Gershon. Hey, Mike. Across the table, we've got Brandon Bertine. What's up, Mike? Next to Brandon, we've got Mr. Nick Peck. Hello, Mike. Hello, gentlemen. Good to see you. You know what? What? That was good, because I know how... Lousy, you feel. Like <laughs> I feel pretty sick right now. <laughs> but so anything for the audio now, Kevin. Please that way. That was, <laughs> you that should was, be the one on Skype. <laughs> that was really good. And uh, and joining us today, oh man, he's uh, he's back to his uh, native habitat on Skype. The one and only Iron Man of the Audio Nowcast, Mr. Rob Arbiter. Hello, everyone. I'm reporting live from South by Southwest in Austin. Awesome. Hey, and uh, you're going to have to let us know what's going on. But before that, um, we have a guest with us today joining us, um, uh, Mr. Mike Varela. Hey, guys. How's it going? Hey, Mike. Uh, Good to see you. Funny story. Mike, I was I was doing interviews over uh, where I mixed during the day, and uh, Mike came in as one of the interviewees. <laughs> and we started talking, and he goes... Hey, I recognize that voice. <laughs> and it was the, he listens to the audio outcast. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, I've been a long-time listener, actually, so it was kind of cool to... He's the other guy who listens. <laughs> That's right. The other guy, yeah. He's number seven. We, so, we meet up at, at Denny's in the so fan I club. So I said, you, know? you, you got to come join us, because that was just too awesome. I, I thought That's it was very cool. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah long-time time listener, it, first-time yeah. caller. <laughs> <laughs> That's, right. That's right. So, uh, but Mike actually... Um, has a nice little resume, and he works over at the Screen Actors Guild and works in the, the lab there. Does a lot of recording and, and a lot of stuff, so it was really kind of cool. Yeah. That'd be cool. Hey, that would be, be cool. Did you see how much work it was to just <laughs> put out for this? Well, you, you just get, you know what? You get two ribbon mics. And then you just do, a, <laughs> and then just just go for it, brother. We I do will. like an old time radio show kind Absolutely. of thing. Absolutely. The audio Nowcast News on the Mars. You know what? And we can play I, a proximity I, effects. I, I, hey, man. <laughs> we'll start with your studio first. You set it up. We'll be there. <laughs> grab, grab us. Since you're missing the video component, and I'm sure everybody listens to this would want to see all the gear in all of these studios. Ooh. You have to be posting photos. Well, that's actually something we're, we're thinking about doing, yeah. though, is doing some um, maybe once a month. Uh, not once a month. Once a quarter. Because we yeah, only well, do the show once a well, month. Why was it twice, <laughs> twice a year to go? Yeah. You know, one do at some, NAM. Do yeah, you video. do the trade shows? You ever go... Do a live at the. You know what? It's all good and dandy, but once again, it all comes down to this guy. <laughs> and, 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 and Mike, he's a little overweight. Mike, we appreciate it. Uh, hey, <laughs> it's fine. I don't mind. I don't mind. This is it's a, it's a blast. Hey, Rob, speaking of blasts, how is uh, South by Southwest? South by Southwest is crazy as usual. It's a lot of people waiting in lines for things they're not sure what they're waiting in lines for. <laughs> <laughs> I actually swear, I came up with a social experiment. If you could like go onto 6th and Congress or like some really busy intersection down there and sort of pay 50 people to wait in line, I think within a few hours you could get 200 people to wait in that line <laughs> just because other people were waiting in the line. Really? You'll ask people, you know, what are you waiting for? Uh, we're not sure, but it must be cool. <laughs> it is, yep. It's crazy how busy it is and how much is going on. I mean, I'm here right now during the interactive part, which there are a lot of interesting panels by great speakers about all sorts of subjects relating to startups and multimedia and virtual reality and all kinds of 
things interactive and it's cool. But there are a lot of music people and film people sprinkled around too because a lot of people come, you know, South by is really multiple festivals. There's an education part and a filmmaking part. Right. Um, music and interactive. And so interactive is just wrapping up now. Music is just starting. And Austin is a zoo. It is not a giant city and it's definitely not designed to take as many people in as it does. Right. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of excitement, a lot of enthusiasm. And if you ever wonder if there's any energy around innovation you can come here it'll absolutely make you realize there's plenty did you have you seen any technology that you want to just say hey that was kind of cool or um well just like last year everything is really about 3d immersion like oculus rift and and different virtual reality systems and there's some you've heard of and a whole bunch you haven't uh there are all these demos and people throwing these super lavish parties to try to get people to come and pay attention to their technology um, I can't say there's any one thing. I mean, there's always the the guest panels. You know, there'll be a few giant speakers like last year. Where Elon Musk was the A ticket that everybody wanted to go and see. Um, this year, I'm trying to think if there have been any speakers in particular. I haven't seen any that were like earth shattering, like, oh, my God, if you miss it, it's the worst thing ever. But there's been a lot of enthusiasm around the panels, which take place at the different hotels. It's weird. South by is sort of one of those festivals that is what you make of it. Uh, you know, if you come down here with an agenda of speakers you want to talk to, let's say you're in a startup and you're trying to meet people to work with you, right. either people you want to partner with or investors or whatever, there's tons of that here. But it's like anything else in, in this business or entertainment or whatever. You have to come down here with an agenda, stick to it, and try to accomplish your goal. Otherwise, you just get eaten up by the mayhem. So I'd say, I mean, I heard some speakers that I thought were informative, but I, as interested as I am in, in their speech, I want to get to know them afterwards and build a relationship. Sure. That's what South by is so cool about. Because you can be walking down the street and meet the CEO of some giant company that you could never get to through normal channels. So it's cool. So basically what you're telling us is you didn't buy an Oculus Rift developer's kit or anything while you are out there. <laughs> that is 100% true. <laughs> was that, was some, it? I had some awesome fish tacos. <laughs> so, yeah. was, was Microsoft show in HoloLens? Um, I have not seen Microsoft. I, I know they're here in a big way, but I have not happened by their booth. I have, for the most part, stayed away from manufacturers. For me, it's been about the corporate relationships because of Drop Till You Shop. I'm here for actual like e-commerce relationship development. So I haven't, I've stayed away from the big booths with the long lines and uh, Microsoft is one. I mean, any big tech company you've heard of has a, has a massive booth and party here, but that's, that's sort of what I shy away from. Cool. Well, when you get back and we uh, see you face to face, you know, let us know if you see anything else cool out there or any awesome time. I will. I will. Hope to be back for the next one. Um, we're going to move on, but uh, let me just say first of all, um, South by Southwest is man. That thing has grown from just this tiny little obscure festival to it is a shaker and a mover now. You know, and not only technology, but I have um, some friends there that are for film. And for music, and and it's it's a it's a move it's a movement. It is. It's almost more than the city can handle at this point. Actually, I've heard talk of splitting some of it off to Vegas, and uh, it's you can tell when a city's at capacity, and we're there. Hey, uh, moving on. Um, I want to talk about this show. We're going to talk a lot about a lot of different things on on the second half. Um, I'm I'm going to. You know what? I'm not even going to tease it because uh, I just want to spring it and get everybody's opinion. But um, but right now, one thing I want to talk about is I kind of want to revisit what we were talking a little bit about last week. I mean, right when I dropped the podcast, the uh, the uh, judgment came with the Pharrell um, 
Robin, Robin Thicke, Robin, Marvin Gaye, yes. Blurred Lines. And, and it, that one kind of made me angry because, I don't know. I mean, there's a certain, it's like, I don't know. I, I think they were, they just wanted to pay, you know, homage to, to Marvin Gaye. But I don't think, it, I don't see quite as big of a copy as they say it is. And uh, anyhow, I just think it has some really broad implications for music and for how people are going to write music and for just, you know, music in general. But, um, but Brandon did another amazing job in yep. breaking down. Mike called me the other day and said, are you going to do another one of these? I said, what? I didn't hear about it yet, but I checked it out. And I did it. Okay, why don't you tell us a little <laughs> bit about it? Yeah, that was so super detailed. But let's, set, uh, let's set the stage first with a little backstory on this. It's a little bit different of a case than uh, the Sam Smith Tom Petty in many ways. Um, but this is coming straight from the Rolling Stones interview about the, or the Rolling Stones article about this. So uh, Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams have been ordered to pay $7.2 to Marvin Gaye's estate over the blurred lines uh, song. The decision, which hinged on the fact that Gaye's family owned only elements of the sheet music got to give it up, came from eight juror, jurors who listened to testimony from musicologists as well as Thick and Williams. So the interesting thing there is they, weren't, they only owned the rights to the, sheets, the sheet music. So they weren't even able to play the actual song in the court case, which was interesting. Um, they couldn't even make that direct comparison to here's this sounds like this. And the judge even said... You know, and rightfully so. He said, no, you can't do that. Um, let's see where I can find Inadmissible. it. Inadmissible. Yeah, but it basically said, uh, here, here it is. He claimed that Gay's voice and the, version, or, and the version's backup vocals and some of the percussion, all of which are not covered by copyright, could sway the jury. Which is true, based on what we talked about last week and what Rob was saying, which is that only lyrics and melody can actually be copyrighted. Um, so that was a good call on that judge. Um, Anyways, the exciting part about this case is that the 7.2 million number beats the, the record high judgment in a copyright infringement suit, which the previous one was 5.4 million. It was the Michael Bolton versus the Isley Brothers case, which I don't know. Do you guys remember? I don't remember that case. What was the big hip hop one in the 90s? Michael that- Bolton does. <laughs> yeah, I bet he does. So, all right. So that sets the backstory. Um, the interesting thing at. at to go along with what, with what I was saying in court, where he couldn't, uh, uh, Gay's estate couldn't actually play the, the song itself. On the flip side of that, uh, Pharrell and um, Robin Thicke got to actually sit down with a keyboard and play the song, Blurred Lines, versus uh, you got to, got to give it up, and just to show the differences. It's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm not sure exactly why they, I mean, I know. Because of the copyright, they only own the copyright to the sheet music on that side. But it's just interesting to see these different dynamics in court. Not always what we would expect would be the case of how things would go down. Right. Um, another interesting fact is that the uh, the publisher of Gay's songs, EMI, has been accused by Gay's of state of not protecting the Soul Icons catalog since it's been folded into Sony ATV, which manages Thick's music. So there's an interesting thing there where we've got both of these, you know, it's essentially the same publisher owning mm-hmm. all these songs involved. So when, when an artist gets sued, whether it's Petty or these, these guys, do the publishers also have to pay, or is it only the songwriter? In this case, I can tell you exactly. The, so that, um, that song itself, and this in itself is interesting info, that song in itself earned close to $17 million 
of which 5.6 million went to Thick, 5.2 million went to Williams, and about 700,000 went to T.I., the rapper um, who had a brief part in that song. Uh, the rest went to the record companies. So, and then Williams also earned 4.3 million in publishing and 860,000 for being the producer, which is just an interesting look at what a giant summer blockbuster song actually makes and what the writers and stuff actually make. But now if they're going to pay off that fee, so is it all coming out of the two guys? What they paid is... Like be- 1.7 and 1.5 or something? I believe it just came from the songwriters. No, they're... No. No. Okay. They're actually each, Pharrell and Thick are required to pay like one... Point five to one point seven. Don't quote me on the exacts, but and there are f- four million dollars on top. It's the of rest, that. yeah, from yeah. EMI, I think, from the company. Yeah. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. Now, if they have to pay, is that a tax write-off? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's bad. Yeah. Hey, one one question though. Yeah. So you were saying that Marvin Gaye's estate owned the, the rights to the sheet music. Do you mean mm-hmm. that they actually own the publishing, so they own the lyrics and the melody, or do you mean that they literally only own? The rights for the sheet music itself and the publishing company or the record company. That's a great question. From what I said in this article, it said that Gay's family owned only elements of the sheet music to got to give it up. Well, so, that's because you've got, well, with music, you've got like mechanical rights. You've got, you know, the actual rights of the actual recording, the, the, it's I mean, performance, performance, there's, 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 there's a bunch yeah. of different rights, but, but actually, the sheet music is is a pretty good copyright to own because that's the song. You know, you're you're. you're it's the lyrics and the melody. Well, yeah, but it, what it, it, it it's not the sync rights though. That's where most of the money's being made. Yeah. Yeah, but if other people record it off the the sheet music, if other people, I believe, if other people. I think that's just the sales of the sheet music. I think that Bobby might well, be Well, no, you're right. You know what? You know who would know? And I wish he was here. It was Martin. He would yeah, absolutely yeah, know. Yeah, Martin He's, would know. He is yeah. on the ball. But anyhow, it's, it's a pretty big, pretty big copyright. Um, but uh, if you cover a track, who are you paying? If you decide on an album, you're going to cover a, a track. Publisher. Well, publisher. You have, you, have to, yeah, for, you have to get approval from that publisher. If that song is going to be used... In a commercial or something, right? Then it's then the revenue from that. Some of it's going the masters going to the whoever did the cover, and the uh, the the publishing rights are going to the publisher. For so, the, so the publisher pays the publisher because he fringed on the rights that the publisher, which is the same publisher. Oh, so in, in this case, <laughs> yeah. right. they're both so the same you, publisher, which well, is weird. Why don't we just do this? Let's just say they owned a piece of the action. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and. and Keep rolling, Brandon. So it, it gets. There's even more juicy details. So uh, it wasn't just this song that they were suing Pharrell and, um, well, Robin Thicke for. It was uh, Gay's estate claimed that Thicke had pilfered not only "Got to Give It Up" but also Gay's "After the Dance" and "I Want You." On all on Thicke's album in 2011, um, "Love After War." So the family alleged that at the time, uh, Thicke they they accused him of having a Marvin Gaye fixation and. Uh, that he's, you know, and that the publisher of gay songs, EMI, they're accusing, as I said earlier, not protecting, you know, this because it's the same publisher. That's that's ridiculous. Um, and then there's also a quote. Yeah, but they won. I know, but it's still. There's also a quote in uh, in GQ of an interview of Robin Thicke where he says that one of his favorite songs was Got to Give It Up and that he told Williams they should write a song with the same groove. That's an interesting fact. <laughs> but, <laughs> yes, but even but, still, that's that's the. I mean, none of that is admissible, still, though. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. In the day, didn't Steve Miller grab a bunch of songs and say, "Guys, 
I like this part of this song, part of that song. And this well, it's been going on forever. Yeah, and, I mean, and it's look, really look in, in jingles, look what happens. Yeah. You yeah. basically give it an instruction, make it like this, and go as far up to the line as you can, yeah. mm-hmm. and then stop at that line. And that happens every single day. Yep. So what did you find so, out in your, your analysis? And yeah, to play off what Bobby just said, yeah, Rob and I had a conversation. You know, we were talking about this at the last podcast. Is that, yeah, when we do, you know, we both had to, you know, rescore songs or knock off songs in our, in, in our line of work. And it, yeah, you, the first thing I do, you know, to get it close is what, and we'll see this in a minute here, is I make sure the BPM is the same because that has a lot to do with the energy and the feel of the song. Um, and then from there, you make sure, you know, the instrumentation is the same. That gives it the same vibe and feel. From, you know, from there, you want to make it as different as you can so you don't get sued. Um, but so here's the details of the song. So BPM, basically the same. Blurred lines, exactly 120. Got to give it up 120-ish. You know, not recorded to a click back then, uh, but very close to 120. Uh, key signature, different. Time signature, same but irrelevant. Runtime, irrelevant. Verse chords, different. Chorus chords, different. Song structure, different. Instrumentation, as I said, very similar. Cowbell, drums, bass guitar. I think it's a Rhodes and falsetto vocals singing over most of it. Um, so now we get to the two elements that Rob, you know, pointed us to last week are the only two that you can actually copyright, which are the melody and the lyrics. So in the melody, no major similarities in the melody. The closest thing appears in the groove at the end of Marvin Gaye's song where the background singers repeat, got to get it over and over again. This is similar to the I know you want it lyric that's repeated in the Blurred Lines chorus. Now, lyrics, um, nothing in my opinion that infringes on copyright at all. The gay estate claimed that Blurred Lines lyrics shake around, get up, get down, closely resemble the move it up, turn around, shake it down on Got to Give It Up. So, you know, that's every James Brown song as well. So so many songs, (laughs) you know, seriously. Uh, So I don't think they have much of a case there. So melody and lyrics, not similar at all. The vibe, incredibly similar. I think, you know... Oh, and here's an interesting thing. Pharrell testified that he said all blurred, li- blurred lines had in common with Got to Give It Up was the feel. And that I agree with. He went on to say that neither Gay nor the song were in his head when writing Blurred Lines. That is an unverifiable claim, and in my opinion, probably a lie, because he nailed it. He nailed the vibe. You know, they got the same BPM, same instrumentation. The drumming is it, exactly the same. Yeah. But you know, it feels like, the same. Yeah. I love Uptown Funk. My son and I, we just, it just, we really like the song. But if you listen to Prince and a lot of funk, I mean, the guitar buzz, that, I mean, yes, there's so it, many things that are lifted. Yes, but it is a knockoff of a style. And I agree, it's a very good knockoff of that style, but it's not a ripoff of a particular song. Mm. You, yep. you can rip off a style all you want. Prince obviously is, so has Stevie. I mean, look, they're yeah. all, uh, you know, they're all Sly Stone in some form. Yep. Sure. Yep. So but, you can rip off a style and you can do a song that's like an amalgamation of a lot of other songs and styles. That's fine. Yeah. But as soon as you rip off a single song, right. that's when it's copyright infringement. Yep. So, so that's the end conclusion is, you know, the vibe is exactly the same. The instrumentation is but, the same. But, but the if copy- it's a different melody, different yeah. words and everything else, $5 million later. Exactly. Yeah, the copyrightable elements are not the same. So I don't understand the decision, really. I don't either. That's is it the, jury? Is that's it, the thing that oh, but they me. couldn't play it in the courthouse. Yeah, it's weird that they, even though they couldn't play the actual song, they had to play, I think you told me, they had to play some, like, MIDI version of it or some, like, 
you know, they couldn't play the exact the abstract you know, of it or something. Recording, they had to play, you know, I think some mini MIDI version of the recording. Anyways, um, but even that being the case, they still settled uh, in favor of Mars fan, or um, Marvin Gaye's family. I, I do have some insight on this because I spent last week on jury duty, and there was three days just on jury selection. Hmm. Basically, we started out with thirty-eight people, and they whittled it down to 11, which wasn't enough, and then they had to call another 38. And actually, I was dismissed from, from the jury, so I never got through the trial. That being said, the judge gave us instructions before we even started that I think play into what you're talking about here. And what it is is he said, look, you're only going to judge this case on a small set of parameters, it's going to be this, this, and this, and you have to forget about everything else. So what I suspect is the jury got instructions, and every jury gets this, and you'll find that even in murder cases, sometimes people get away with it or people are convicted because the instructions are you have to convict or you have to uh, <coughs> dismiss if this, this, this happens. So I suspect that the jury basically had no choice because they were giving given instruction that said okay here's what it is and you can't think of anything else beyond that so that, that's my supposition just having gone through something like it well at least going through the jury process last week yeah that's so that's no. interesting but i, I i'm con- still confused because if they simply looked at you know they weren't allowed to play the songs which obviously the vibe is the same if they just looked at the musical breakdown of the songs, as I said before, the chords are different. Different, you yeah, know, the structure is different. Writing the is jury different. Was, wasn't, yeah. They weren't musicians, though. Well, they right. did bring in a musicologist. And they brought and, a musicologist you know, yeah. to said, "Look, similar, similar." Yeah. So somebody but who brought the musicologist in? Did yeah, both sides bring their own musicologist? That's a good question. See, that's that's the thing, man. Star witnesses, expert witnesses can be bought and can be sold depending on which side of the fence they're yeah, on. Yeah, totally. You know? I did a movie called Runaway Jury. Watch it. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I've seen if you... if <laughs> Frontline, man. Frontline did a really great um, program on, uh, on expert witnesses. And it was just amazing how... There's a whole industry of, of people. That's what they do. They become expert witnesses. And it's like, man... It's just uh, it just gets me angry, so I can't talk about it. But anyhow, <laughs> <clears throat> I, I got to say though, <clears throat> this is going to be appealed, and I don't think it'll win on appeal. Personally, now <clears throat> I think an even bigger point on this is if you look at the analysis throughout the industry, it's doom and gloom. Oh, this is going to change songwriting forever, and I think that's totally wrong. I think it's going to be business as usual. Every when people create on a level of Pharrell or Robin Thicke, they create because it's something that they feel. They feel it's cool, and they're doing it, and they're not thinking. Now, in your line of work, it's different, Brandon, mm-hmm. but for most creators, most songwriters, it's, I want to write something that's really cool, and I think it's exciting me, so I think other people get excited too. I don't think this will play into that whatsoever, so to me, he also it's has what a f- you do about nothing, and I think you'll see that it, 
you know, it, it's good to write about and it's good to read about, but that's about as far as it'll go. Right. Yeah, Pharrell has I an unbelievable track record of songs. I yeah. mean, just a huge catalog with sure. NERD and his other bands that he's been in and just unbelievable stuff that he's produced. But this, you clearly are like... But it's the feel. It's, it's the, the feel. You're yeah, like, we're no pilfering a little bit of this, you but, know, from But again, song. It, if you put those songs up side by side and you just listen to the, the melody, I can't hear it anything similar yeah the only similar thing was what i mentioned yeah. that little part that the background singers are doing at the end of the song so well it's gonna be interesting to see what happens on on appeal because um i think if it stands i can definitely see things changing you know it will I, change I, for publishers because yeah. publishers will, will think twice about signing somebody if they feel that there's too they're too derivative hmm. they'll think twice about releasing something Record labels would think twice about releasing something. Yeah, on that level. But as far as creators, I don't think it'll matter. But no. I, I even I don't think it'll ever get to that point. Well, I hope not. Because, because again, like we talked about this the last time, what makes something suable for one of a better term? Well, if it's a hit and it makes money, it doesn't yeah, matter. Look at true. every blues song ever made. Twelve bar blues. That's they true. all sound the same. That's a great point. It brings me to my final point: is the lesson to be learned here is. If you are composing songs, feel free to copy the BPM, copy the vibe, all the instrumentation, and all the feel. Just don't copy the melody and the lyrics. We're not saying we recommend that for you know, you know, from the sake of songwriting and originality. But you can get away with it, and it might get you a hit. And if you get a hit that's big enough that makes you millions of dollars, and you're getting sued for it, it's not a bad problem to have. And stay away from Marvin Gaye's catalog. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. <laughs> hey, Rob. You had uh, you said you were talking about this out there and had some great in- insight. Yeah, anything you want to share? Yeah, it, it's it's actually amazing to me. I didn't realize it was based on the sheet music, and based on the sheet music, I'm actually amazed that they uh, won the case that the Marvin Gaye family won. But based on the reality in life in the real world. I think absolutely it's a ripoff of the song. So I'm not surprised at all that they won. And I just have to assume that some external knowledge of the songs just clouded people's thinking. Because to just look at the sheet music, I don't think you would get that it's uh, a direct ripoff. If you actually listen to the two records, it's much more obvious. So if they were truly judging just on the sheet music, I'm surprised that the gay family won. But You know, it's funny because one of the things the judge tells you when you're first selected for a jury is don't listen don't talk to anybody right you know they they, but you're supposed to uh self-limit yourself Mm. which is impossible in a case like this because everybody's heard both of those songs so you know and i'm sure there's so much publicity on it that you can't avoid it of course so even if they they didn't play it in court people have heard it and the jury heard it and that has to have played into it because it's just a sheet music Let's face it, if you never heard the songs and were just flipping through sheet music at the Library of Congress to try to find two similar songs, I don't think those <laughs> That's true. It sounds like a fun vacation. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens, and uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye on this. And uh, Brandon, shoot me over. Uh, I will send this to you for PDF, posting. So, and I'll post it. Go just ahead. The last one got a lot of uh, 
Yeah, it was cool to see. I got some response on Facebook. Response. Can I ask a quick question? Because I had always heard like people are like, oh, you know, mock a song, change it ten percent or five percent or something, and then you can get away with that. You said you've mocked songs before for for work. Can you have some more? What do you do? Yeah, to do that. We've had this discussion on the podcast before, and I think it used to be like seven or something, or I don't know. But I feel like maybe Bobby Summerfield or somebody said like that's not the case anymore. Maybe it was Rob that it's more about would a jury, as in this case, decide you know. Like a jury of regular people go, oh yeah, that sounds like that song, you know. Where, you know what? but but what is it? I don't know. I I can give you some advice here because I mean, like Brandon, I've had to do this many 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 times where I was told to do something inspired by a famous piece of music, and I put up the air quotes for inspired for anyone who isn't seeing this, which is everybody. <laughs> uh, the bottom line is, you're much better off having an original thought and an original idea and then adding elements to pull it more towards what you're trying to sound like than you are by ripping something off and then trying to make it different enough that you don't get sued. So like Uptown Funk is a good example. It is a lot of elements that were brought into an original song to make it feel more like that 70s funk feel. And it's fine. It's great. Um, But as soon as you set out to copy a song and then keep saying, well, we better change this or we're going to get sued. We better change that if we're going to get sued. It's one thing if you're doing a commercial where you're given an original assignment. But if you're doing original music as a recording artist, the whole point is you should be trying to be thought of as somewhat of an original. If you want to bring in elements, I mean, Bruno Mars brings in plenty of older elements to his music, but his stuff still has a freshness because it starts with a fresh idea. So think about writing the original song first and then pull the production in a direction to make people feel a certain emotion. But don't start by ripping off a song and then just trying to make it as different as possible so you don't get sued. I think a lot of people just do it backwards. Very well true. said. You know what? And on that, we're going to wrap this up with the uh, with the lawsuits, hopefully. There'll <laughs> <laughs> be another one next week. <laughs> well, after this judgment. <laughs> I hey. heard there was another podcast having the same conversation. I say we sue them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, really quick, um, before we take a break, um, one other thing I wanted to just mention was the uh, Game Developers Conference. Happened. Oh, yeah. Um, Really quick, uh, any anything cool there? Any cool audio toys or audio technology or any lawsuits? Any? There were no <laughs> cool lawsuits. Um, I love the GDC. You know, it's Hi. my hometown, so I go back every time, um, and it's wonderful. Um, I am. At this point, I've been doing video games for so long that I don't do too much on the audio track anymore. I'm much more interested in, because all those are the same audio guys that I know. So I do a lot of producer stuff, and I learn about business, and I learn about you know design, and I learn about different things along those lines. By far the coolest thing that I saw while I was there, though, was a lecture by Tom Salta, who's a composer who works at Microsoft, um, and and it was called Mastering the Creative Process. And the entire... Um, the entire lecture was about his phases of creative process. So he's sitting there and he's got a brand new video game that he's going to start and he has absolutely no idea what to do. And so rather than just getting right in and getting the pen out and starting to write sheet music, um, he gives himself the time to be able to just play. And he just fools around and he just comes up with some different ideas and he stores all those ideas and he's just, you know, sort of gathering, gathering, you know, gathering materials and gathering ideas and, you know, writing them in logic or in Pro Tools and then saving them. And then after a while, um, he starts taking those and sifting through them and saying, okay, well, what's good here and what's useful here and what is the stuff that I can actually start working with? And as he's starting to do that, 
Um, he has a good, you know, he gets a better idea about what the game is going to be about, and so he's able to start taking material and be able to place it into where it fits within the game. Um, and then over a period of time, what's really important is that he closes the door on sort of the new idea gathering. He's like, okay, now I'm done with making with with making new materials. Now I'm going to sit here and spend the time doing the hard work of just spinning this stuff out and having it all fit what's going on within you know within the particular levels of the game that I'm doing. And then at the end of it, of course, there's a, com- a point of complete panic in which is like, oh my god, I'm not done. It all has to be finished <laughs> in a week, and I'm not there yet. And then, of course, that's followed by the oh, it was terrible, this really sucked, I'm so <laughs> awful, and all the self-doubt stuff. And then finally, at the end, there's a uh, you know sort of a sense of, okay, well, I guess that wasn't so bad after all, and postpartum depression, and then <laughs> on to the next creative project from there. Uh, so you know we- what? Sounds like the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, anything that you saw out there? I, I did, you know, I, I made a stop before GDC, flew into Oakland, and I went straight to Myers. Oh. And, um, huh. and, and spent, uh, I don't know, two and a half, three hours in Myers. How's Myers doing? My, uh, Myers has something called the Constellation, and it blew my mind. Um, my, what, Myers Sound, you're Myers talking Sound. about. In Berkeley. What they've created, and I think it's public access. I don't think it's you know special, quiet stuff. But they've created an environment, a series of microphones and speakers. And what they can do is emulate in a room any environment in real time. So we basically just took a wood block, just two pieces of wood, clocked them together. First time, big hall. Sound like reverb, sound like a hall. I was like, okay. I wasn't sure what he actually was doing. So then he goes, okay, pushes a couple buttons, hits the, the wood block again. And, and this is a big theater. Hits it again, and it sounds like the size of the theater. Hits it a third time, and this is what blew me away. Sounded like a tiny room. Wow. Dead. Really? And I sat there and went, uh, okay, I'll bite. How we, and this is all in real time. It's not a recording. He just goes, clack, clack. And the acoustics of the room totally change. And he says, the room is filled with microphones and speakers that are doing a combination of reacousticizing uh, uh, um, and, and basically changing the aspects of the room. Holy smokes. So he goes, we can reproduce any dubbing stage or concert hall in a room just by the acoustics. Wow. And I was like, holy shit. I mean, that's like... That's huge. Oh, it was on, huge. On so many different levels. Because I sat there and said, and the room is filled, <laughs> in every, it's filled with speakers. Because mm-hmm. I said, wow, it looks like a really dense Atmos room. Hmm. And he's like, they had everything there. They had uh, IMAX and, and version of Atmos. It was, this is Constellation. <laughs> and I was like, I am in Nirvana. I mean, I mean this, is, this is what. So when you would speak, every huge. time you spoke, the acoustics that of the room would huge. change. And it didn't feel like there was a significant lag. But, you know, going to a bigger room, yeah, we get it. There's a lot of ways to do that. What blew me away is when it went into a small, small room. room. Yeah. I mean, and this room was a theater. I mean, it was not a huge theater, but a theater. And next thing you know, it felt like a 10 by 10 vocal booth. Dude, could you imagine horror movies? I mean, just a whole nother dimension. I mean, just movies in general, but especially changing the acoustic space like the dimensions of, of what you're hearing and uh, uh how many poles did it take to make it work was it or speakers like uh, like hundreds i don't know no i mean it just it was it's filled with you know it was filled with speakers around the room 
But he was very, you know, proud to kind of I, I heard they put it in a, a restaurant in San Francisco. That would be that, that was actually their test bed, apparently. There was some to cut back all the weaver in the room. That's it. Breakfast yes. in bed, and you're literally in bed. There you go. But, you know, you know when what I, what I see the application, <laughs> and this is a big deal, because a lot of times when we're editing or pre-dubbing, everybody wants the big room, but there's only one or two big rooms. Right. So then you get a smaller room, and you emulate the responses mm-hmm. of the big room. So you do your dialogue, your music, and your effects pre-dubs at, during the mix, and then you go to the big room, and it all matches. All of a sudden... That's cool. Yeah. yeah that's you know cool. who's got the system is Bob Weir from the Grateful Dead at his recording studio in San Rafael. He's got one of these systems set up and he can use it to emulate when they're rehearsing the acoustics of the next venue that they're going to go play at or oh. previous oh. venues that they're playing, which is pretty cool. <laughs> and it sounds amazing. I agree. Yeah, you know, in, in the 60s, Abbey Road actually had a, a precursor to this. They called it Ambiphony and it was in the big room in Studio A. And the reason why they did that is even though it was in the big room in Studio A, it really had a short reverb time. So the only way they could emulate a church for getting, you know, the, the, when they had orchestras in there was to have the system, ambiphony. And what it was was speakers all over, right, all over the wall. And they had one of the first analog digital delay systems and remember the Benson Echo Rex with it where they had the uh, the drum the metal drum rotating metal drum that's what it used and you can hear it on one Beatles song that they used it on the end of A Day in a Life that's the only the big time. C major chord on yep. all of the pianos yeah wow but but you know obviously they couldn't go the other way but it was a very early I, I, I've played like I've spent a lot of time with Iosono and Iosono, if you put it through their room simulator, it could simulate any environment, including outside. And that was cool. But it was had to be, I mean, there was a whole rack of computers, and it wasn't in real time. What made me kind of blown away by Constellation was it was recording what was in the room and playing it back through their speakers in a way that felt like it was still in the room. It didn't feel like I was reproducing that sound. No, no latency. No. And I, yeah, no latency. But you know, like also, like you, like when you speak through a mic, you hear it. You, right. Your ears yeah. go right. straight to that source. Yeah. They tune the speakers with the room and such. Where you're, the moment the sound got reproduced through their speakers, yep. You couldn't. It, it's not like your ears went to the speaker. It just sounded like the room. Wow. That's that's amazing. I um, we're gonna we're gonna have to take a break because we're going long. But man. Can you imagine? I mean, if they can oh, yeah. make that a commercial product, that's that's there's just so many different uses for that. Um, all right, so we're going to take a break, and uh, when we come back on the other side, we're going to talk about some really cool stuff. So we'll see you then. You're listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and Westwave Audio. Have a question for the panel? Would you like to be a guest on the Audio Nowcast and live in the L.A. area? Email us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back to the Audio Nowcast. And uh, before the break, we were talking about the Myers uh 
constellation is that what it's called yeah man that's that's going to be pretty awesome i will say that i can't wait to see that technology um develop hey really quick before i get into what i really want to talk about i i, I need to talk about this and i want to get your guys opinion we haven't talked about this in a long time but it has to do with mixing and it has to do with faders versus using the mouse all right mm-hmm. i've had to work behind Okay, I, I work on both, right? I do faders in music, and I do a lot of mouse mixing and post. Um, and let me just tell you, when you're when you're working faders, I have a real big pet peeve with people who work faders on stuff they don't know, because what ends up happening is as you're moving the fader, you're always late. You hear an explosion, you bring it down, but you bring it down after the explosion. You hear a uh, you hear um, some dialogue that you want to bring up. And you're late after it. You're always, you're always late. I mean, it, faders work really great with music. And actually, they work really great with anything if you know your source material, right? You gotta know your source material because you gotta know when to go in. And also don't have, have like nervous fingers. I've, I've seen sessions where you get these little nervous fingers where you just see fader movements just because the, the person is holding the fader and like just can't keep it still, right? Just, they're kind of like, kind of playing with it, like anticipating having to move it up or moving it down. And that's one thing where if you're a mouse mixer, man, you can do some really great stuff. I mean, there's some, obviously there's some negatives about being a mouse mixer, but man, you can really carve your, your volumes in and out and around stuff really fast, really quick and really accurate, regardless if you know the material, because you're reading the waveforms. And I just wanted to open up really quick if you guys had any opinion, like Nick, fader or, or mouse? Well, it depends on, it depends on what you're doing. Um, I completely agree with you hundred percent. It's interesting. Just today, um, at four o'clock, I received a video and I had to mix it. You know, and I had to come and do the show, and so I really had about two and a half hours in which I had to do some sound design sweetening and mix the whole thing, and it, and it was a mess. The music was, you know, in ridiculous shape, and the gain staging was all messed up. Uh, I don't have faders, you know, at this Pro Tools rig that I was working at, so I was doing everything with a mouse. Um, and for me, so normally I am a faders guy. You know, I have a Control Twenty Four. I right. did, and I've got a, you know, now I've got. A, the euphonic stuff, and I, I and it's fine for doing mixing for music. Um, when I'm mixing post in Pro Tools, the big thing that changed for me was clip gain, the ability not to go in and do it by working with the automation curve. I'm a thousand times faster being able to go listen through a section, grab you know three or four layers of sound effects, and be able to clip gain them up or down a dB at a time. Yeah. And for me, when you're when you're moving fast, I haven't found a faster way to be able to mix more reliably than that. And yes, as you said, you know, you know that that transient for the Explo um, is down at the level that you need it to be at right. before before you uh, move on. Rob, what about you? Fader, mouse, both. All I can say is I've been down in Austin here, and among other things, working with the misses, you know, on upcoming singles and stuff. And so I've been mouse mixing because I'm doing everything on my laptops, and I am so eager to get back to my console this weekend. It is so much faster for me, especially on these complex mixes where I have a million things going on. I love spreading it out across 48 faders is what I'm usually using, and uh, I've gotten very used to that. I was a mouse mixer a long time ago, way before I could justify buying a console or could buy a console, but um, I don't know. I miss it desperately. I miss being able to work on multiple sounds at one time. I mean, with a mouse, you have to basically grab one fader at a time or a group of faders, I love being able to organically just decide, okay, I'm going to be 
you know, riding the bass here while I'm playing with the guitar, while I'm playing with this keyboard, while I'm playing with the reverb return. I love being able to just grab random things in a mix and feel like I'm using 10 fingers instead of just one at a time. Now, so, you know, that that's a good point. And I'm not, don't, I'm not anti-fader, right? I'm just saying there's, you know, there's a certain place and a certain way. And, and music, I love working with faders on music, especially yeah. since I've heard the song a couple times. I kind of know. You can kind of feel. You can kind of, you know what? You can get really emotional with your mix. With well, I'll also, say, I'll also say that for me, like eight faders is a million times better than no faders. But 48 faders is only a little better than 8 faders. No, no, that's actually true. Well, once you have the ability to grab a few things at once, it's not like you have 48 fingers or you can even concentrate on a console that's 12 feet wide all at the same time. But being able to grab a few things and move them and being able to have that tactile feel, even if you have one fader, that to me is a huge jump. But there's definitely diminishing returns. There's clearly diminishing returns as far as the cost of the console. (laughs) uh, consoles get really expensive when they get that big and it's unnecessary uh but having some faders to me i mean i'm i'm actually planning when i leave town again which won't be for another like five days but when i do leave la again i am going to carry some kind of small fader thing with me even if they're terrible faders i'd rather have something in my luggage that i know i can do a quick mix and just grab some kind of fader besides a mouse rob can i ask you a question about your process when you're mixing um, in that kind of thing, do you basically just have touch automation on or latch automation? What mode are you in? Do you just like turn on touch for all 48 channels that you're working against and just jump from thing to thing and just change things on the fly? And, and I'm sorry if I seem distracted. A mosquito the size of a puppy. Just <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. It's like a squirrel with... Meow. I think I mm. knocked it out. Okay, anyway. Meow. Sorry about that. Um, usually, I would be... I mean, in the beginning of a mix, I might be in latch, but I, I spend a lot of time in touch where I'm just surgically going through a section of the song over and over and just doing multiple passes. And I'll rehearse a section, you know, a few times. And then if I get one right, I stop playing with it. So I'll often be in touch. Uh, the decontrol is really smooth and, and efficient for that kind of stuff. And I've gotten very used to it over the years. Um, so that's usually the mode I'm in. I mean, a first pass is usually latch because I'm basically starting from I have no idea. So by the time the song plays through once, I usually have it where you can at least hear a little of everything, even if it sounds terrible. Yeah. But then I'm I'm very much about uh, touch. What about you, Brandon? I actually do something similar to Rob, um, but I have a uh, I've got an Akai keyboard MIDI keyboard that's got knobs and some faders. The faders I've found are a little. Jumpier and don't have the smoothest, you right. know, response uh, as far as riding your your curve, your automation curve. So I tend to use the uh, the knobs actually, and I'm not mm. doing, you know, I'm, I can't really do two, more than two knobs at a time really, and I'm typically only using one. But I'll run like if there's a you know a piece of music that I feel like these strings need more emotion and to come up at the right points, I'll rehearse it, run a few sections, and then just you know record it, record right. that automation until I get it right. That's how I use it. Scott, what about you? You're uh, on the feature side of things. I, I, you know, obviously a lot of fader work, but. You know, uh, for me, uh, it is hybrid in the fact that it's kind of like sculpting. Yeah. Um, I want to get the rough mix together, usually through clip gain. Um, But I do it for different reasons. Um, One of the things that people don't even think about, but it's an old school concept, and that is how you can hit your plugins. So if you, you know, a lot of people hit it so hard, and then after the plugins, they bring the volume down. 
But the sound sounds different, how it's hitting the plugins, how it's hitting compressors, how it's hitting saturators. Sometimes it wants to think it's squashed and kind of of blast through. And other times I want to get that air. I want to be able to keep the fidelity of the sound. So clip gain becomes a very strategic approach, different than VCA. Um, I did something today where I was uh, creating this laser and it's, it's kind of a com- comedy type uh, cinematic. And I have electricity. And of course, electricity is, you know, I could sit there and try to, uh, uh, um, y- using a, a, a mouse or a trackball, trying to create every little up and down. I just grab the fade. Write the picture, done. If I had a little delay, take the automation, two frames back, and I'm done. It's fast. Yeah. There's certain ways. See, I look at a fader as an instrument. Yeah. As same as a guitar. Not all faders are the same. I'm very picky with how a fader feels. If it feels bad, I hate it. Like the plastic ones and keyboards, I can't use them because it just just doesn't feel right. It's like playing a bad guitar. So for me, when you get faders that have just enough resistance and just enough feel – same with the like with panning, I could pan on a on a track uh, 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 on an iPad, but I have one of those old uh, Joe Cooper faders, yeah. And I grab it because my hand knows where it wants to be in any given moment. I don't have to look at it. Yeah, it's not you don't have to look at the the frets on a guitar. Same thing with knobs. So you've got knobs, you've got panners. I'm looking at the skillet. Then now it enables me to take the panner and use it on effects. You know, Mike Shapiro created a thing called the skillet. It's really kind of cool. So it, it makes it where you not only pan, but you can do an X, Y coordinate. You do things with plugins. It's totally assignable. So now all of a sudden, really what it comes down to is tacti- tactile uh, hardware devices to be able to accomplish something. I like, you know, for dialogue, I am one of those people that keeps touching a fader. Um, why? Because I want humanism. When I do ADR and someone's speaking like this and they're really enunciating, it's crap. Because when they're actually acting, they're kind of speaking like this and, and the voice is doing things. So when I'm matching ADR against dialogue, I sit there and kind of fader it and, and just try to give it I accent actually syllables or words. I'm not using a, a, a fader to get rid of an S. I'll, I'll divot the you know clip gain for that. But also you want to create a humanism and... You want to perform. You want to help the actor perform against the other performances. Yeah, I mean, it's a fader. Rob? Can I uh, give everybody a million-dollar Pro Tools clip gain uh, tip? Absolutely. A lot of people might not know. And if everybody else knows this, I'm embarrassed to say I just found out about it, actually, within the last couple months. But I think it's an incredibly useful tip that a lot of people don't know how to do with clip gain. And that is, if you want to do clip gain on multiple tracks. Like if you have a lot of things together on different tracks and you want to clip gain all of them, logic would tell you that you somehow group those events and then clip gain them. And there is a way to do it that way, but there's a much, much cooler thing in Pro Tools, which is if you turn on under the view menu, you turn on the clip gain line, instead of it just being the clip gain little picture of a fader, you turn on the clip gain line. You can then on multiple tracks, just select regions that include all of those and then if you use the trim tool, F6, it will clip gain adjust all of them proportionally to each other. And, and you so can you also, oh, go ahead. You don't actually have to group anything to clip gain multiple uh, events. It's weird that it only works when you have the clip gain line showing, but really huge time hmm. saver. You could also grab as many as you want and use the minus 
not button, and it brings it down in increments hmm. of you, half a dB or a dB. You can also do the three key combo, select clips, exactly. and, then and then use your mouse wheel. Oh. Use your mouse wheel, and it'll give you half dB increments up or down, or whatever okay. increment you want. You can yeah. set that in the preferences, yeah. which yeah. is great. I usually set it to one dB. Yes, clip gain is a clip gain is an awesome, awesome tool. The the trick not to doing clip gain is if you're mixing a like I say a lead vocal for a song, it's bad to try to. Until you have a final, final mix, it's not really a good idea to use clip gain to try to ride your vocal because then you're <laughs> a bunch of changes. It's actually still much better to do it organically on a fader or using like. Well, the other thing on clip gain that you got to watch is when you're using clip gain, it it's gaining everything, right? So you have a noise floor there. Guess what? That's coming up. It's coming down. So if you do a lot of clip gain and you have a noisy, a noisy room, that thing is going to be pumping up and down left and right so just just be aware of that too you know it's like sound effects you know you come from different libraries and some people in the old days used to think that the only good sound effect is one that goes all the way to full gain yeah and when you're listening to 85 db i several times today get ripped out of my chair oh that's the worst start, and you're like <laughs> why why is it so loud so you know the first thing you do is you grab all of them and you know key it down 8 db 10 db well, it's all about the gain staging, and people don't realize that, you know, when they're trying to, first thing you need to do, or the first thing I do when I set up a mix is make sure that everything is roughly in order so that there's headroom coming through the buses, because if not, it's going to sound like crap, and oh, yeah. you're going to have and, to go and fix it later. It's just like what you said about hitting the plugins too hard. And that's what I've, I find, because I'm starting to mix a lot of other people's sessions, and it's amazing how many people, especially picture cutters, but how many audio people, it's like guitar amps. They're slamming the tracks, oh, and dude. they're bringing down the master fader, oh, yeah. and they're wondering why everything sounds oh, squashed and flat. Don't, mm. yeah, don't get that to, yeah. to me. Oh, I, Those I, picture editors, man. They'd love dude, to do but that. It seems the, sound understood. Here's, here's yeah. the other thing. The other thing is when they duplicate tracks. Oh, we need more gain. Yeah. And they like, <laughs> put like four dialogue tracks all on top of each other. It's oh, yeah. like... Oh. And, and the other big thing is, why is everything dual mono? Everybody thinks, well, it used to I have, I have to, to be, be everything stereo. Yeah. And I keep getting all these trucks. I'm like, you know, you, you, oh, I've seen more people grab stereo and pan it in the center. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, you can just go with one of these tracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah for years, Final Cut wouldn't allow you to have mono that way. And oh, that's really? why, yeah, they yeah. were beholden to stereo tracks for dialogue, yeah. Bobby, are you a mouse fader? Um, I'm perfectly happy with the mouse. And surprisingly enough, uh, when I wrote the latest version of the Mixing Engineer's Handbook, um, I had interviewed 22 people, 22 of the best mixers in all genres. And the last time, the second edition, I think was six years ago. And when I went around and asked them, how do you mix? Do you mix with faders? Do you mix in the box? There are very few that said I'm comfortable in the box. This time I was surprised that even some of the classic mixers yeah. saying wow you know i'm happy with the mouse now so uh i felt good because i wasn't the only one yeah well you know having said that you know you can grab a virtual fader with the mouse it's not like you're always just and also yeah, the question yeah, is i mean you know you talk about faders and mouse what kind of mouse oh yeah because there's so many i've because i got several because of you know carpal and um, you know, there's the vertical mouse. There's the the laying down mouse. Trackball, trackball, trackballs are huge in, mm-hmm. in the biz. I hate. I I, I can't use, use them anymore. I, I am with Cor- you. Yeah. I can't. I My can't. elbow. Trackballs are not 
are not precise enough for me. They're like guesstimations onto where you want it, but I, I am way more accurate with a mouse than I am with a trackpad. Well, it's not that for me. It's well, yeah, it, that's part of it. But <clears throat> the big part is um, it really hurts my elbow, hmm. mm. uh, tennis elbow, I guess. Wow. Yeah. And also the other thing I found, which I think got me away from certain amounts of of plugin automation, is certain plugins. I won't name them. Um, when you grab a piece of that plugin and you move it in real time, stutters. Mm. They're not smooth. And uh, it's better to use a fader like on an icon than to actually graphically control it. Rob, were you going to say something? I was just going to say, I want to give a uh, shout out to the trackball people out there because I actually hugely prefer trackball to a mouse. Um, I understand the tennis elbow thing. I've had friends who've had the same issue. But for me, I actually find a high resolution trackball to be more precise. And in my studio, I'm always limited with tabletop space, and I have so many computers that I got used to a trackball a long time ago, so that's, that's my go-to thing. Wait, wait, wait. So, also, yeah. let, me, let me make a thing for you, Rob. <laughs> but okay. you know what? That's the second time on this podcast that Rob was wrong. Wait, wait. <laughs> the thing is, wait, I, I, okay. when Rob says... He, that would be the third time on this podcast that Mike was wrong. <laughs> oh, I've, I, I've seen Rob use a trackball, and Rob doesn't use a trackball like anybody else that uses a trackball. I, when we were writing some music together, it blew me away because, first of all, he tends to be the fastest typist I think I've ever seen. He he knows exactly how to spin the trackball back to a point where it lands exactly where he wants, and he keeps typing. So it's not like you go back and I think I'm over here. It's like, and he's back typing again, and the same thing when he's sequencing. And so the trackball for you is truly an instrument. But it is, but I'm just saying I, that's what I've gotten used to. So I was just giving a shout out. Just I didn't. I mean, I value Bobby's opinion 100. percent I'm just saying each of us have our own. Yeah, For it depends if, you, if your hand can deal with it. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I can't use it. No, anymore. it's just I'm just saying there's no correct answer. It's whatever works for you. Absolutely. And I do agree with what Scott said. If you do have issues with carpal tunnel, I mean, I feel very fortunate that I don't, and I'm constantly trying to move around and keep my hands limber to avoid that. But changing input devices. Uh, is a useful thing too because it's any repetitive motion is going to cause injury eventually. Yeah, and, and you uh, know what? What's also great, which I, we should mention, is the program teleport. Yeah, because I'm using three different computers. I have the same mouse and the same keyboard on all three, and I just mouse right across my screens. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, and it's it's brilliant. So you now you don't need the because I used to have the several trackballs yeah. all in a row. And now it's all gone. It's just one. I, I will say, you know, Rob brought up a really good point, though. It's whatever, whatever you feel comfortable with, and once you find it, you know, it's it's because I know guys on trackball. A really good friend of mine is just swears by the trackball, and he's really good, and he works it. So it's it's you know, I'm not anti trackball. That's all I use, by the yeah. way. I, I will say this, by the way, which is, I know is going to make me sound geekier if that's even possible. But when I <laughs> I bought the D control, which has that horrible trackball built in, right. There were options to replace it with another trackball that would either sort of sit in the same spot or sit on top or whatever. And they were all really ugly to me. And so I actually spent a whole night saying, I'm going to just master this terrible trackball. And the thing Scott was describing, I do do. I'll sort of flick the trackball and know where the cursor is going to land because I basically spent a whole night when I bought that console, (laughs) basically doing target practice where I've said, okay, I'm going to flick it until I can get it to this exact point on the screen. And I got... I started using it to the point where I don't continuously use the trackball. I can sort of flick it with a finger and get the cursor to land where I need it. So it's sort of this hybrid way of using it that was just a geeky practice thing 
on my part. But I mean, the D control trackball is probably the worst trackball I've ever used. But if it's in an expensive console you buy and you can't find a better option, you just you should do a YouTube video of it. It is amazing to watch. It's a really boring YouTube video. I'll tell you one thing before we, you know. And this probably really boring segment, <laughs> but like um, I use a Razer mouse, and from the gaming world, I, since I play a lot of PC games, um, the great thing about using a mouse from Razer is you can change the DPI. So I on, on my mouse, I can button up or button down the DPI, which basically controls the speed of the mouse. Because sometimes you want you know really fast, and other times you want it to be really slow, really precise. And so if you have a a mouse that allows you to do that, it's a really great way to use a mouse, not have to have a whole giant desk by just changing the DPI setting on your uh, on your mouse and adjust the speed. Magic and, mouse for me. <laughs> you like the magic mouse? Yeah. That's actually, that's not too bad. That's a, that's a good mouse. That's a good mouse. Hey, Mike, really quick. Uh, fader or, or mouse? I am uh, clip gain for effects and dialogue always, and then uh, music because it's feel. It's I have just have a Fader Fox Fader Port, one of the single uh, MIDI controllers, and I'll use that for music just because it feels good. And then sometimes if a client's watching something, then I'll do Fader rides for. I never do automation for dialogue or for effects. I do it all in clip gain until the final watch down, and then maybe. Can you take that down a little bit, or do you mind moving that up? So I'll do it that way. But uh, and then I'm a I'm a mighty mouse. I have the magic mouse, and I have a hard time because it's so flat all the time. <laughs> I have so I actually went back because I'm much faster with the uh, with the mighty mouse than I am. All right, well there you go. See, and, 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 and actually, one last thing I just thought of. You know, I've started playing a little bit with the S6, and one of the things they have similar to what the Harrison does is they've got vertical waveforms. So you know you talked about anticipating what you're going to hit. You see it. You see it on a, on a, on a horizontal display right. as well. But it's interesting. You see the fader, and it's coming now. And so there's a visual that goes with the audio, and it's kind of like having a cue sheet or, yeah. a, or a, a cure. Yeah. So it is kind of cool. I mean, the S6 does some really cool Wh- things. Which direction is it going? Vertical. Yeah, it's vertical. Vertical, up or down? I think it's down. Mm. If I'm, I, coming from the top, it's like a waterfall. Screens, yeah. and you see it coming yeah. down towards the bottom of the screen. I think so. I'm so used to Harrison too. So I'm like, mm. which one's which? I think it's down. I, I prefer it down. Yeah, it's the M40, and you have to get the down TFTs. Yeah, that's TFT yeah. screens on the top of them, and they'll. But I think it's, it's it's kind of a again, it's all tools. It's eye yeah. hand coordination. Yeah. And I just think this whole this whole thing it's it's whether a mouse mixer or a fader mixer. You know, there's room for both. Like I said, I, I use them both. I'm I'm. I can work either way. But I see the days of the 6400, you know, the big, big, big consoles. You don't need them anymore. Oh, no. Eight, I, eight to 60. You know, really comes to, if you want groupers, I mean, I dealt with eight faders for the longest time. Now I've got 24. I like 24 for different reason. I'm still using only eight faders. But now I get to see the other 16 and right. what's going on. Yeah. I'll tell you what, I really like the Avid S3. I think for me, that's about as big of a of a yeah. console as I'll ever need, especially when I put together that system for NAMM show for API. Between that and the API, it was like... The faders are great, but don't you miss uh, like an EQ knob section? Oh, yeah. I mean, this, it, I like the faders and, and I, the, the knobs, the EQs. Man. If the S3 had a whole like knob section that you can add onto it, yeah. that would be killer. Well, look... I use knobs um, both when I use the mouse and when I use faders because if you're going to sweep 
frequencies yeah, totally, to yeah. find the offending frequencies, you cannot beat having faders. I mean, so having knobs faster. to do that. You I agree with saying? you hundred percent on that. Yeah. Yes, yeah. but there's a cool thing like the icon does that I really like, and I. Because uh, I've, I've been using mostly D command, not D control. Right. But if you have a VCA that's on a fader, everything that feeds that VCA is on a knob. So now all of a sudden you go, oh, there's the offender, and you just grab the knob, you bring it down fast. All right. Well, on that on that note, we're going to wrap up this conversation. But I, I had to bring it up because I, I people get on their high horse and they're like, you know, <laughs> you're not a real mixer unless you touch faders or you know, oh, that's old school. You need to you know work with the mouse. And it's like, nope. There's plenty of room. You can still do it. There's you lots know. of hits being done Wait, on a mouse. Have you? That's do right. you use any foot controllers? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I do. I don't. Punch in, punch out. Record button. It's all in feet. So you hit play. So your hands are always on the fader. You don't have to move. Play and record is by your feet. Yeah, I, I've never... And it's, it comes with the, it's a little toggle switch on the D commands. You know what? I've never tried it. Uh, I, I'm going to try that. I can see it. So it's I great totally when you're a keyboard player. When you, anything where your hands need to be anywhere else, it's all about the feet. Because I do a lot of... Uh, I record a lot. I record a lot of VO, a lot of ADR, stuff like that. that I, can, I can see... Do the foot pedals. Nice. Although a lot of times the producers behind me, they 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 know when I'm doing it because they see me hit the record. So I don't know, but that's that's really interesting. I had a, uh, I had a thigh master wired uh, with a <laughs> <laughs> jack, and I do it little, little head twist thing, you know. <laughs> but you know what? It's funny you said that because that's such a guitar player thing to do. Because all my friends who are guitar players and record at home, they all use. Because they, they're, they're yeah, yeah, the yeah. guitar, so yeah. they, they know how to master that. I mean, they're drummers too, you know. Nah, drummers, we just pff, all right. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, hey, I'll tell you what, um, man, we are running long, so I'm not even gonna get into this. I'm gonna push this to the next thing. Um, but uh, you know, one thing I want to talk about, and and just to give you a little teaser, um, I and you guys can think about this, but don't you think? In a lot of modern music, the lack of musicianship and the lack of just skills on the instruments. Um, That's why I listen of, to fusion because and jazz. Of, well, because know? of technology, <laughs> we're only going to see more and more lawsuits like this that are coming up because people are always looking back. They're always looking to sample. They're always looking back as opposed to writing their own original new stuff. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? <laughs> and then people would be forced to actually master instruments and come up with something creative. I mean, are we still going to be sampling the 70s in the year 2050? Yeah. I, I, At some point, something new has to happen. Are we talking about pop music, though? Because I buy a lot of music that is completely new and different. Yeah. Right. No, no, no. That is coming I'm, I'm out talking, that's not I'm talking, mainstream. Totally. I'm talking mainstream. I'm talking pop. Because I'm not saying there aren't musicians out there. There's only seven bands in the Grammys. That's it. After that, I don't watch cares. the Grammys because of that anymore. But, you know, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But I'm just talking about, about mainstream. representative. You know? Yeah. And maybe we'll talk about this on the next podcast. This is going to take forever. But really, what kind of got this whole thing started in the first place because I knew we were going to be talking about the lawsuit. And then I just so happened on Pandora, I have a uh, I have an ELO station that I have set up on Pandora. And man, it was throwing such great songs, you know, and, and you know, everything, all the old school, you know, Fleetwood Mac and the Moody Blues and just really classic songs. And I'm thinking that, I'm thinking, you know, there's just 
some amazing songs that have been written that were pop mainstream songs. Where's our equivalent of that? You know, we have a lot of samples, a lot of things. That hey, Rush is still playing. Things, so, <laughs> anyhow, we're, we're gonna August first, in fact, down here in LA. I know. Alan Parsons is doing a concert out mm, here. Cool. Very cool. But um, we'll catch up with that. But, you know, along those lines, you know, I'll let you guys stay about that for, for a week or, or two <laughs> or four. <laughs> Anyhow, hey, uh, if you have any comments or questions, you can reach us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com. That's audio at nowcastnetwork.com. Um, really quick, anybody? Nick, you were working on anything that you can talk about? Uh, working on working on tons of cool stuff, but the thing that I want to share in this segment this time around is Kima 7, the new upgrade for Kima, which has made it much more user-friendly for people who are not interested in delving into... Is it a plug-in yet? It's not a plug-in yet. You is it still less have than to, a car? Huh, it is significantly <laughs> less than a car. It's significantly less than a car. Kima is the best sound designing system in the world. I think it sounds absolutely amazing. exclamation marks and... Well, only if you want to do that part of it, yes. But the new version, Kima 7... Sorry, just sort of <laughs> pimping the new version. Um, they've really gone through and they've taken a look at the whole thing and they've tried to make it as user-friendly as possible. Um, they've just changed a tremendous number of things. And the thing that blows me away is I bought my Kima system, I don't even know how many years ago, and I said, oh, I wonder how much the upgrade is going to be. And I sent them my serial number, and they said, oh, your upgrade is free. Oh, that's awesome. That, that's, that's really cool. That's an amazing <laughs> is, is, it new, is it new hardware or is it no, software? It's I'll, new software. I'll, I want to come over. I want you to give me a, a demo of it. Because I, it seems like all the good sound designers or electronic musicians, all the ones that I really admire and like, you know, you find they have Kima in there. Or well, the, the, the Kima is an amazing instrument, but like any that other, I'm not personal friends with. The, but like any other amazing instrument, it takes a tremendous amount of dedication and practice. You can't use it and also use, oh, I don't know, Ableton Live, and also use Reactor, and also but, you use know, this and use that. But I mean, is it intuitive a, enough? Like you would grab an Eventide Lexicon, any plugin, you know, and just go to it and bam. Or do you have to just... Uh, it depends on what it is that you're trying to do with it. It's it's always very much, for me, been a serendipity machine, but uh, depending upon how complex you want to get with the processing, but if you want to use it to manipulate the basics of samples, to throw a sample into it, to you know play with it on your iPad and change the pitch and change you know all sorts of different parameters in real time on your iPad and re-record it into Pro Tools, I've never found a better way to do uh, it uh, than One that. last question I have. Does it sound organic or does it still sound digitally, like electronic music It depends on what processing you're doing with it. I think it sounds more organic than just about any other um, you know, sample manipulation stuff that I've found. If you're sitting there doing vocoding or doing you know, some of the stuff, or you know, granular synthesis. I mean, granular synthesis sounds like granular synthesis, right? But I mean, as far as the pitch goes, as far as being able to manipulate a sound with something like an iPad or a Wacom tablet or something like that, I've never found a more organic way to be able to manipulate sound in real time than the Kima. Cool. Brandon. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, let's see what's going on. My, uh, my music library, Synchronic, is just about to release a new trailer music collection. Nice. Listen, Mike was nice enough to let me demo a few songs on his system the other day. But yeah, that's a big thing happening now. It's coming out in about a week or so called Destructive Trailer Music. That's no, really Ooh. good. Some good mm. stuff. Bobby, are you working on anything? Always. Uh, <laughs> believe it or not, I have a book coming out that is outside the music business. Really? Yes. That's fantastic. It's... I think. <laughs> Twilight fan fiction? I know. No? No. Oh, no it, it's um, cruise, the Cruise Vacation Fact Book. 
Really? Frequently asked questions. I, I love cruising, and I do, you know, three, four a year. So I finally decided to write not one, but two books. And this is the first of, of two. We got to talk, because I... I I'm so on the fence on taking a cruise. Oh, yeah, okay. So oh, we'll have cruises to. are the best. Cruises are the great. I love cruises. Yeah, but also, um, I just want to pimp my 101 Mixing Tricks course, which is doing very well and uh, doing better all the time. 101mixingtricks.com. And, and you know what? Nice. I, I will second that because every time I ask Bobby for another tip, they're really good. So I'm just... He's told me a couple of them. Um, yeah, we'll have to talk about cruising because yeah. I, I see going on a cruise, right, yeah. to work, but just to be away from someplace. Because I like working like at weird places. That's exactly what I do. You know, so I would I would take a little studio setup that I have and just go there. Be inspired and, by the Mediterranean. Well, yeah, because yeah. I, sometimes uh, to be creative, all you need to do is just change where you're at. You know, and you can just change your your thought process. I love sitting on the promenade deck. Sitting with my computer and watching as the dolphins go by, or as you're you're going by Cuba, you know, you see the, the lights of Cuba in the distance. Or, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, and a tax write-off. No. <laughs> yeah, uh, yes, and that too. Scott, how about you? I got nothing. Um, I can't talk about anything I'm working on right now. But um, yeah, I'm 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 doing a lot of creatures, and I'm also doing a lot of comedy and. Do a lot of weird stuff, but uh, yeah, unfortunately, can't name titles. Hmm. I read Guillermo is coming out with a new movie. Is that uh, in one of those things you can't talk about? Pacum Two. Is that what you talking about? I don't know. I didn't actually know because it was. I, I just literally the article was. I just heard Guillermo's new movie. Wait, <coughs> well, awesome. he's got Crimson coming out. Oh yeah, Crimson. Crimson yeah. comes out in October, um, and 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 he's talked about Pacum Two. Nice. And I guess that's all I could talk about. Okay. <laughs> <That's> all. <laughs> How about you, Mike? Um, just chugging along, just working on the animation that I do for effects. And um, I've actually, uh, well, I can't really. Well, I'm putting together Martin's new studio. Mm-hmm. He's finally upgrading, and he's not here, so we can talk about it. <laughs> but uh, he was working on six seven, right? And by the way, he's Portals? one of the yes, he's one of the. Be- but it's it sounds great because we locked TDM? everything. We locked everything to a big Ben, and and you lock it to a big Ben. Yeah, but it's TDM. Good. Never mind. Listen there, Mister Snooty TDM. <laughs> you know, <laughs> one time you were TDM too. And but I, but know. no, we well we just upgraded, and it's gonna be it's just gonna be mind blowing because when he. I, I loaded him up with Complete Ten Ultimate, and that alone will be more stuff than he's ever worked with. And uh, and but he's done like he's done about oof, on that system. I think he has probably about seven albums under his belt. Uh, you know what? Maybe I should have said that <laughs> because he's only released three. <laughs> Just know there's more music coming out. But um, but yeah, so it, it'll be that's actually kind of cool. It's cool working with him because he gets so excited about the simplest little things. You know, we just got him the G-Tron Mellotron. You know, and he was just in heaven on that thing. Although that plugin is a beast. I mean, that just sucks up a ton of resources. You know, but. Sounds good. And we couldn't find a better Mellotron, so that's really cool. So I'm kind of back in tech mode. Rob? No one's going to ask me what I'm working on. Yeah. That's what we're <laughs> on. Um, I was a, you know what? Rob, what are you working on? 
Oh, no, now I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> now, I was just going to give a shout-out to uh, the Are, Aren't you buying Apple at this point? No. Oh, okay. I have a lot of Apple computers with me, though. Uh, no, we're just working on the Mrs. Uh, on a few more songs for the EP, and that's all going really, really well. And uh, we've actually gotten some really nice uh, fan mail from listeners to the Audio Nowcast. Uh, they've reached out to the band on Facebook, and it's actually been a really, really nice response. So I appreciate everybody out there checking them out at themrs.com. That's themrs.com. And Enough is still the big song and movement that's propelling the band, and they've been doing a lot of TV appearances about it and radio, and now there's some print articles, and there's all kinds of stuff going on with that. But there are there is going to be new music. The public is asking for more music, and there's going to be some coming out soon. But the response from the Audio Nowcast listeners is really appreciated. So you know who you are. Thank you all. That's awesome. <laughs> hey, Mike, really quick. Are you are you working on uh, are anything on your I'm uh, delving into Reaper because cool. uh, yeah. I want to learn scripting for it. So yeah. I'm trying to do I batch process a lot of things. That's cool. So I'm trying to figure that out, and I'm writing a, uh, a tutorial video course on Pro Tools for voiceover artists. So That's I'm great. Doing that and finding that it's really difficult to speak on mic without messing up during this video because I don't like editing video at all. So I'm I'm trying to script it all out on, on my computer and then read into mic and do the thing in Pro Tools too. But it's going to be like an eight or nine hour course on uh, Wow on Pro Tools. Yeah, so I'm going to put it out there in the world and hopefully make some money on it and well, steer cool. people towards it. Yeah, so it's that's actually really good, especially for VO people because they they a Every time I work with somebody new, they're always asking questions about that. Yeah, so I train a lot of people, and they don't know anything about thing. acoustics, and I have YouTube videos I've done, and I hold classes, and technology is so cheap these days yeah. that anybody can get into it, and so they're kind of like everybody's getting into it. And yeah. So, yeah, I'm using... And is this all through SAG? Yeah, I, this is from my own my own company, but I'm using a, a website called Udemy, which is kind of cool. Which oh, is more yeah. of, I do programming, too, so it's a, yeah. more of a programming kind of website, And uh, but I think I'm one of the few audio people on it, so... Cool. It's a cool system, yeah. It's a, it's a split 50-50 on the course. All right. So. Well, uh Good luck with that, Thank and you. Uh, let us know when it comes out, and we'll definitely yeah. uh, cool. give you a shout out. Really quick, Larry um, from uh, Wild World, Wire World um, sent me cables, yeah. and uh, on the next podcast, I'll, I'll do a uh, I'll do a little report. But I will tell you this: when you get good cables, the best thing about it is, man, they're good cables. The worst thing about it is you start finding all your weak links. Anyhow, that's a whole other podcast, and we're going to stop. Hey, I want to thank everybody for listening, and if you have any questions, once again, you can reach us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com. That's audio at nowcastnetwork.com. From myself and all the guys, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and West Wave Audio. The Audio Nowcast is hosted by Mike Rodriguez and uses Aphex's 230 Master Channel Voice Processor. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>